Welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go. Behind the lens below and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the actors, the cinematographers, the sound mixers, sound editors, film editors, costume designers, production designers, composers, authors, you name it, and we talk to them. As all of our regular listeners know, it's a varied and sundry collection of artisans and their talent uh, on Behind the Lens, both here on the show and then on the website, BehindTheLensOnline.net, which you can access 24-7 in addition to every single episode for going back to our very first one. Uh, so you've got over eight, you've got eight years worth of Behind the Lens radio show. Uh, that is a podcast on the website and out on all the podcast platforms as well. So you can find us everywhere, but every Monday, except last Monday. Last Monday was Recuperative Monday and NAB Monday. Uh, we'll get into that in a second. But uh, every Monday, right here on AdrenalineRadio.com, or if you are tooling around on Facebook, you can go to the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page, and there is a live stream with a corner camera that isn't the best in the world because Mevo still isn't working. And the only cool thing is you get to see my ever-changing tablescapes. There's no big deal seeing me sitting here talking. But the tablescapes are cool. And if you're looking today, it is my homage to TCM Film Festival, which... Guys, everybody that was there, you know how great the festival was. Um, everybody who's playing catch-up now. Um, I was on Hit the Red Carpet opening night. 16 interviews. They are all up on BehindTheLensOnline.net. Great interviews. Pam Greer, Jane Seymour, Lawrence Hilton Jacobs, Keith Carradine, Patty Pelton from A League of Their Own, celebrating its 30th anniversary at the festival. Jane Seymour, Somewhere in Time, celebrating the 40th anniversary. Uh, Lawrence Hilton Jacobs, showing up for Cooley High. Pam Greer was there for coffee. And i got to tell you, Pam Greer is one of the most fascinating women I've ever spoken with. But just a ton of interviews. Um, it was nonstop for a while. But all of those, you can see them now on BehindTheLensOnline.net or go to our YouTube channel. Yes, we have a YouTube channel, too where you will find carpet chats as well as exclusive interviews that uh, are turned into video slideshows. So you can see images of the film as the filmmakers and talent are talking about the specific aspects of the making of. So today, today's show is, is a little bit different. Oh, but first let me, if you're watching on the Facebook live stream, um, you can see some of the joy of TCM Film Festival, and I have to give a huge shout-out to TCM for the very, very cool swag that they gave press. Um, we got a clear bag, which, as Pam, my engineer Pam has told me, oh, that's very good because a lot of places don't let you take closed purses and bags in anymore. So I now have a clear bag with a TCM logo on it. They gave us part of the TCM Wine Club wine collection, but this is a special TCM Classic Film TCM Classic Film Festival Merlot. Uh, also, they gave us—you already heard me talk about it before—Scott McGee's book on stunts in the film. They gave us the brand new, and it's a very, very cool. I'm going to get up and, and lean over here and play because I like—I like to play. We also have. The very cool Ultimate Movie Trivia Challenge. It's all classic films. And I highly suspect that so that uh, my friend Lisa Bruno will be partaking in a game of that with me. She's a huge classic film fan. And, of course, a very cool insulated mug with a lid for those of us who like to spill. And then, obviously... Great t-shirt. They only had one style of t-shirt this year, um, which was a disappointment. They normally have many more. And then, a pride and joy for me, 
I'm so excited. I'm going to be speaking with this man this week, George Stevens Jr. George Stevens, you've heard me talk about him before. George Jr., founder of the American Film Institute, the, the American Film Institute Lifetime Achievement Awards, the Kennedy Center, Kennedy Center Honors. He is a legend, as was his father in the industry. And he now has his brand new book out, My Place in the Sun. Uh, he was a mover and shaker in Washington, as well as Hollywood. It is, I've already read it, it is fabulous. George and I, you can actually see a quick interview with him uh, that we did on the red carpet at TCM Film Festival. Uh, but we're going to be doing an in-depth interview on the book. And I can't wait. George Stevens Jr. is one of the nicest gentlemen on the planet. He is enthusiastic, energetic, still excited about the craft of movie making, the intricacies of it. Uh, and the people and he cherishes classic film and the history of film so uh, I can't wait for that so I'll be able to bring you that interview with George in the coming weeks and also Scott McGee and I are going to be talking later this week now that he's had time to catch his breath after TCM Film Festival and uh, you're going to get to hear that interview which will be really interesting how do you pick 50 stunts and car chases out of over 100 years of films. How do you narrow it down to 50? So um, that's going to be really exciting to get to talk to Scott in depth. Uh, he gave a presentation at TCM Film Festival with the incredible, buddy, legendary Buddy Joe Hooker and Debbie Evans, one of the best stunt women and motorcyclist in the business today. Um, it was a great presentation and conversation for an hour. And uh, anybody that wasn't there, I'm so sorry you missed it. Uh, hopefully TCM will have some of these recorded and at certain points make them available on the TCM website so that people who didn't attend the fest can just get a taste and a flavor and a little more insight into filmmaking and classic films but and of course last week then not only did I need a day to recover but National Association of Broadcasting Convention was right on top of TCM and ran for the first part of the week and while I could not go in person I was able to virtually check out uh, on Monday a lot of what because I had a friend who was there so walking around doing a FaceTime so I could see things and ask questions and get close-up looks. There is some great new product, new lenses, new films. Black Magic never ceases to amaze me. For all you filmmakers out there, Black Magic has, makes affordable cameras, affordable camera packages, light packages, so that you can own your own uh, instead of having to rent when you're doing productions. Um, they've got some new stuff that's come out and they are essentially they're one of the most compact professional cameras and lighting packages that's out there today um, but some really great tools are in the toolbox for what's coming down the pike as we look at 6k 8k um, delivery systems are being improved and if delivery systems are being improved it means that what you're seeing is being improved so we'll talk about that more probably via some pieces on the website and the YouTube channel but let's get back to today's show today we were supposed Emerson Moore first-time feature director Emerson Moore was supposed to be joining us live today but due to logistics with a publicist and the distributor uh, he wasn't able to call in live today so we did a pre-recorded interview on Thursday for his new film Escape the Field it is a tension-fueled um, psychological thriller it's no way around it um, you're gonna hear that interview at the midpoint of the show which is where he would have been slotted as a where he was slotted as a live guest I'll get into that a little more uh, in a minute. But first, I just adore this man as a director. 
You know his films. Casino Royale, GoldenEye, Mask of Zorro, Edge of Darkness, The Foreigner, legendary Martin Campbell. Well, now Martin Campbell is the director of Liam Neeson's new film, Memory. Um, and one of the great things about Martin is that he builds action and, and big set pieces around story and characters. And that's something that is so important with memory because Liam Neeson plays a hitman, an assassin for hire. He is the best in the business. But you need your wits and you need an incredible sense of memory and recall. And now he's in the early and rapidly advancing stages of Alzheimer's. So what do you do when you're a hitman and then suddenly the tables get turned and you are now the target of the people that hired you because even though your memory may be faltering some, and even though you are a hitman, you have a moral code. You have a moral compass. And you will not cross that line. No matter what else Alex may be forgetting or can be confused about, that he is, is so ingrained in his DNA. And he will not cross a line and puts himself, the target's now on his back. And you've got the FBI agents involved and Guy Pierce plays lead FBI agent Vincent Sarah and he is it's a great performance from Guy Pierce you also get Ray Stevenson in there Harold Torres is so understated but he's he plays Hugo who is also an officer not not local officer not FBI but it all involves, there's a lot more happening here with who all the targets are uh, in this cat and mouse game. And then, of course, we've got Monica Bellucci, who, as Martin himself says, she brings the pizzazz to the film. And pizzazz she does. Memory is, it's written by Dario Scardapane. It's based on the book by Jeff Garrett's. Uh, and the film, Dizak Alzheimer, by Carl Jews and Eric Von Loy, um, which was when the film, that first film uh, th that was made, the German film, that's something that Martin, you'll hear him talk about that and how that influenced him with making memory. Um, Martin is a joy, pure joy. Uh, his expertise is on display at every turn in this film. He has a great command of cinematic storytelling, his visual grammar, melding story and performance with the tools in the toolbox is fabulous. And he works with <laughs> the incomparable David Tattersall, cinematographer. They have worked on more than a few films together. And you all know David Tattersall's work. Star Wars Revenge of the Sith, Star Wars Attack of the Clones, Star Wars Phantom Menace, Con Air, The Green Mile. Paranoia, which he shot in Philly for Robert Lukatic, um, Tattersall, and then Die Another Day, um, and The Matador, both with Pierce Brosnan. Tattersall is amazing, and he and Martin Campbell have this great affinity and collaboration with each other. So, But one of the great things here is the authenticity and sensitivity to Alzheimer's. And this is where Liam Neeson's performance is standout. Both Martin and Liam Neeson both did extensive research into Alzheimer's, which Martin, and you'll hear him talk about, incorporating that into plot points and thematic setups, um, while Neeson just truly embodies the heartbreak of a man going down this rabbit hole uh, of Alzheimer's. It is, I, I love this film. Uh, it has some twists and turns that you may suspect might be there, but then when they happen, it jolts you. Um, it's available everywhere now. I can't encourage you not to see it. But right now, take a listen to my exclusive interview with Martin Campbell talking memory.
Hi, Martin. Hi, Debbie. I can't tell you what a what a privilege and joy it is to speak with you this morning. So oh, well, same here. I have been such an admirer of your work for so long, and to see what you have done here with memory is just outstanding. Um, what I particularly love about this film is, and the fact that Liam is also embracing this with the roles he's taking, he is mature, he's now of a mature age where he knows he's not 30 anymore. And the characters are now reflecting that. So that now, in addition to slowing down but still having to rely on your wits, to now bring in this Alzheimer's idea, dementia, losing yeah. your mental acuity is so beautifully brought to life here. And I can't compliment you and, and David Tattersall, who is a god, as well as your editor, as Joe Francis, in really hammering that home, holding on moments, letting us process the confusion but still the moral compass that this man has, even though he's not yeah. quite sure what's happening. And you never lose sight of that, but still keep us honed in on action. It's just so beautifully executed, Martin. Oh, good. I, I, I'm honestly glad that you, uh, that, that you liked it. What were your biggest considerations in bringing Dario's script to the screen, because there are other film versions of this uh, story. Indeed there are. No, there's one. It's actually based on an old, but the, um, the first film was a Belgian film, very good film, very well acted, well directed, um, uh, and um, I saw it in 2013, and I saw it on DVD. I managed to get the right in 2016 or 17, got a script written, sent it to Liam, and because he said he was good, we got the film set up. But um, it really was, you know, I, I couldn't get the rights for three years or mm. four years, so we finally did, and uh, here we are. I think you're the perfect person to make this film. After what you've done with Mel Gibson in Edge of Darkness, what you did with The Protégé, and then you're just a master with action. So you really bring maturity and action all together here in a beautiful way. Oh, good. Once you had this script in hand, what was your approach to developing this and the visual grammar to aid in this storytelling and retain that human essence that we needed to see in the character of Alex Lewis? Well, the, the, the thing was, we, we had to plot the Alzheimer's thing without making it kind of melodramatic. Right. The, the first thing. And we, I spoke to uh, an expert, you know, a doctor who deals with, um, deals with this problem. Uh, I also did, did, did a lot of research looking at it. I then went through the script, and we've only got 110 minutes, really, to, um, uh, to develop the arc as far as all time it was concerned. Mm -hmm. Of course, in real life, it takes years. Um, and uh, so we, I plotted it all out on the, you know, each scene that needed, it started off, as you know, with the uh, opening scene where he forgets his key, or forgets where he put his key, and it finally ends up where the Alzheimer's is very advanced, and, uh, you know, he's struggling to remember anything. So I sort of plotted that right the way through as to what scenes we, um, you know, uh, we illustrate this, and Liam himself had worked on it, and uh, between us we managed to, uh, you know, that's what we came up with, is what you see in the movie. Um, and, uh, 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 and, and of course, there's the whole thing about, um, you have Liam who is, you know, his uh, profession is, uh, it's pretty horrible. I mean, he's a, he's a hitman who kills people for money. So uh, he's a pretty um, dark character. And of course, he, if you will, redeems himself or wants to redeem himself. And uh, by, not, um, by, by not targeting the girl and in teaming up with uh, Guy Pearce's character in order to see justice served, is uh, 
it makes him quite a complex character, basically. And, and that's what, to me, is so interesting. Uh, Alex Lewis is a very complex character, and I particularly love the fact, and this is the humanity, and this is the empathy that you get with the character, because he does have a line in the sand. He has a moral code that he will not cross. And yeah. no matter what he may be forgetting, that he exactly. remembers, no matter what, that is so ingrained in him. Right. We, we never lose sight of that, Martin. That is such a strong suit of this film. Is That's a driving yeah, well, force. I, yeah, and, and look, you need a Liam Neeson to carry that off. Yes. You need, an actor, you need an actor of his skill and ability uh, to be able to do it. You know, and, and you also need a guy Pierce to contrast that if mm -hmm. you as, as the cop. He's a wonderful actor, yeah. And of course then, Harold Torres, this would not work without his character of Hugo. Exactly, the sort of, they all have a, what's the word, as some characters, all, you know, they've, they've all seen tragedy in their life. You know, Harold does, obviously. Um, uh, obviously, uh, Liam has. Uh, there's that rather wonderful scene, he plays with his brother mm -hmm. when he goes, and what he's looking he's looking into the mirror really that's how he's going to end up and we don't realize that until later on because it's one thing you, you lose your key we all forget where we put our keys exactly. uh. <laughs> <laughs> i'm doing it every day for christ's sake i'm not being you know, on the way out hey when you're in school you're writing cheat sheets on your arm underneath your sleeve so everybody can relate can relate to this how did you and David go about crafting the visual grammar here? Because what is so key, you've got some incredible angles, some great dutching, some where they really hone in on the anguish that we see on Alex's face at times. Or when we're down on the ground and he's in the thick of action, still that eye level on the, on the concrete floor. Or we're up and you're giving us great almost fly on the wall shots and all of this aids and propels not only the story but the idea of the alzheimer's of the dementia so i'm curious about what how you and david developed the visual grammar and construct from a camera standpoint and bringing in the action but keeping it at a distance so we can really see and appreciate the guy still has game yeah, you know, there's, I, I, it's difficult for me to explain. I, I, I just, um, yeah, I, I think about it a lot. I plan very carefully and so forth. But the visual aspect of it is just, you know, I work that out very carefully. I pre-plan all my shots, the way I'm going to shoot it. Hopefully, um, it's uh, in tandem with the, uh, it's in tandem with the scene. Um, I can't quite explain sort of how I go about it, other than sort of uh, doing, I think about it a lot, I go on the location to plan all my work, um, you know, and the process, I, I guess, visually, I, I, uh, if you look at my script, um, I have every shot written down for the scene. Um, it's all planned very carefully and thought about, uh, and that's the result. I, I can't really explain the sort of, why or how I kind of arrive at it, <laughs> I guess, instinctive. <laughs> well, your instincts have served you well for many a year, Martin, and they're still serving you well. It's evident here with memory, because you also incorporate some beautiful lighting and a color palette. Well, you have that. David Tattersall is terrific, and, uh, you know, a, a lot of it is that the, the look of it is down to him, you know, because he's wonderful. Uh, he's a perfect DP for me to work with. We we get on very well together. He's done my last. I've done four movies. This is my fourth one. So and and he'll do the next. Well, and of course he knows how light he light and lends Liam to his best advantage as well because he shot sure. him before. Yeah, and Liam has no vanity at all. I know. He just you know Liam does what he's got to do, and you never ask him. He's never asking you about his key light or, you know, uh, this or that. I always ask actors, what's their best angle? Always. Um, and if I can incorporate that, obviously I do. Um, but, but with Liam, you know, it's all about the acting. 
how difficult was it putting this task together? Because it is such a careful balancing act of who can who can fill these personalities, such as Guy as Vincera and Harold as Hugo, and even Ray Stevenson as Detective Mora. There's a lot of ambiguity in Ray's character, and you really wonder what as the story develops, what side of the fence he's on. And then of course Monica Bellucci. I mean, it's just beautifully cast. So I'm curious. Was it difficult to put this group together so that you've got the complement and contrast that you needed for the story? Yeah, look, all they can do with this is, 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 is just actors that you think are right. Well, obviously, Liam goes without saying. Um, Guy is an actor I've loved. I've never, he's never said a, a, a line that I haven't believed, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. It goes way back to uh, obviously Memento, but um, uh, the, uh, L.A. Confidential, you know, terrific. Um, and uh, uh, so uh, I was in very safe hands with those two. Monica just brings uh, what, what's the word pizzazz to a part that could be uh, a little bit dull without someone like her. That's what she brings into it. It's it's not a big part sort of on screen. It's not that big, but it's, um, you know, she just brings a kind of uh, pizzazz to the whole thing that uh, without her would probably be not, um, not nearly as interesting, you know, and uh, those sort of parts, it's great to cast somebody, I think, a little bit left field like Monica. Um, and by the way, the original was a man, it wasn't a woman. I decided to cast it as a woman because I thought the relationship with her son uh, worked uh, uh, much better with it being a woman rather mm -hmm. than I've got to ask you, at this stage of your career, with all the different films that you've done, is there anything out there that you still want to tackle, that you still think would be a great challenge to you? Absolutely not. Absolutely not, Debbie. The thing is, I can't think, you know, the question I get often asked quite often is, you know, is there the one project that you will have? No, is the answer to that. You know, I, I'm a great believer in, I obviously get sent scripts, there are projects I'm developing, so forth, but it's just simply instinct. I like this particular script, I think it's interesting. Um, uh, I, I like the story. Story and character, of course, are the two main things. Uh, and, and that's that. I don't have any, um, you know, ambitions to do some... Uh, and, and those that do have that film that they really want to make inevitably screw them up. <laughs> I, you think of John Houston in, in Under the Volcano, you know. Um, Steven Spielberg in Hook, perhaps, is not, that, not his best word. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and there are many cases of that, you know, the, the people, one from the heart with um, Coppola, you know what I mean? Um, so, so the answer to that is no. Well, I can't wait to see what you bring me next because I will watch anything that you direct, Martin. You always bring something new, something different. It's always entertaining and you always manage to find the humanity and the connected tissue in the characters. That's great, Debbie. Well, thank you very much for that. Oh, Martin, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. And I hope we get a chance to do it again in the future. We will. It's a great pleasure. Thank you, Martin. Bye-bye. I love it. And that was Martin Campbell talking about memory. Um, it really, it's an excellent film. Neeson is, he's still, Liam Neeson is Liam Neeson is Liam Neeson. Um, you give him action, you give him the complexity of a character, and he always takes it a little bit further than you thought possible. Now, we're going to shift gears here and go from a veteran filmmaker to a first-time filmmaker, Emerson Moore. First feature directorial escape the field uh, didn't know what to expect when I sat down to watch this it is definitely a thriller there's a little bit of horror 
but it is primarily a thriller. Six strangers suddenly wake up in a cornfield. And we're not talking a, a dried out Halloween cornfield. We're talking the, cor uh, the ears of corn are there, the leaves, the stalks are green. Um, it's, in, it's in full, full foliage. You know, it's just at the height of growth. So it looks really cool. Um, but it's not really cool. Because these poor six people wake up, one, in her nightgown. Um, these were some interesting snatch and grabs, apparently. And they have nothing. They don't have ID. They don't have cell phones. They have nothing. But each one of these individuals is left with one item. One person has a gun with a single bullet. Another has a box of matches. Another has an old school lantern. Another has a knife. Another a compass. And one person has one flask of water. And when I say flask, I mean the little hip flask that people sneak liquor in and stick in their back pocket. Um, they run into each other in this cornfield within which there is a maze, a very complex maze. Do they work together? Do they work alone? It's a great character study of the human condition under stress. And as if trying to find their way out of this cornfield maze isn't enough, there is something that is snatching them one by one. Is it human? Is it demonic? What is happening here? There are clues that they are given if they're smart enough to put them together. And trust me, when you watch this film, you will love looking for the clues. The film is very analog. It is very like post-World War II, post-Korean War conflict um, with the items that each is left with, survivalist items. Um, and you are just drawn in deeper and deeper and deeper. The individual characters, we have Brian, who's played by Shane West. He's a military veteran, served in Afghanistan. Um, he seems to have great strength. From where it comes, I'm not telling you. Then we have Sam, who's a doctor, played by Jordan Claire Robbins, who is outstanding. One of my favorite characters is this young late teens, early 20-something kid in a suit and tie played by Julian Fetter. Julian, you may remember him, and if you haven't seen this film, see it. Walk Away Joe. Julian held his own against Jeffrey Dean Morgan. It, I, I love that. It's a little gem of an indie film, and if you haven't seen it, see it. It boasts great performances all around, but Julian is standout. Now to see him step in here with a totally different role, but one that also requires dramatic chops and freneticism even in this one and kind of bratish temper tantrum, oh my God, am I going to die attitude. Then we've got Denise, the one who woke up in her nightgown, played by Lena Watko. We have another girl, Cameron, played by Tahira Sharif. Uh, she's the one that was given the flask with water. And she didn't tell anybody she had a flask with water. Okay. And then we've got Tyler, played by the fabulous Theo Rossi. Much of this film, we see Sam and Tyler together because they're the first two people that we meet, the first that run into each other. Uh, because nobody is left in the same place when they wake up in the maze. They're all left in different places. But this is a wholly immersive world that Emerson and his team have, have created. Um, cinematographer is Stephen Whitehead. Um, I know his work from Hallmark Christmas movies. This is not a Hallmark Christmas movie. So I love that we get to see Stephen's cinematography stretched. Editing is done by Mitchell Martin, who does a terrific job with pacing. 
and of course the soundscape and I know our good friend Steve Lee would very much appreciate the soundscape of this film uh, it's a the Will Musser did score but the score is more sonically oriented um, in an interplay with soundscape itself with wind blowing through the cornfield the rustle of those fat leaves uh, the sound of somebody thinking, okay, we can eat some corn here. But then they start to strip the husk back. And you can hear the sound of pulling. I, I love the detail that went into the sound. You hear, you know, anybody that's ever shucked corn, you know the sound that the husk makes as you're pulling it back. And you're cursing all the little silk threads that are in there that you can't get out of the kernels. But such a well-done soundscape. And it also celebrates silence. This film has quite a few silent moments. And it's contrary to what you think would be there, which makes it even more impactful. So, for I, I gotta tell you, it's on all platforms this week. It opens on the 6th. Theaters, digital, VOD. Uh, it, it's a winner in my book. It is an absolute winner. And your third act has, it's got a twist in there you don't see coming. But first time feature directorial, outstanding job. Emerson is also one of the co-writers along with Joshua Dobkin and Sean Wappen. So take a listen to my exclusive interview with Emerson Moore talking Escape the Field. Hi, how are you, Debbie? I am so thrilled to be speaking with you about Escape the Field. I was riveted watching this film, Emerson. This isn't a typical, it's not one of the tropey horror films that we're used to seeing. You've got a cornfield. The minute ever you see a cornfield, you automatically think, ooh, it's going to be fall, it's going to be Halloween, it's going to be really creepy. But this is so much more than that. This is a true psychological thriller. You really bring this in, you and your co-writers, Joshua Dobkin and Dean Wathen. This is really a character study of the human condition under, survivalist, under a survivalist scenario. How well do you play with others? How well is it just about me, myself, and I? This really is a great character study. That is what really had me riveted through this entire film. That idea was just outstanding. Where did the idea arise for this film, Emerson? Did you, did you guys all wake up at breakfast one morning and, hey, we're eating cornflakes. A great idea. We're going to do a film set in a cornfield. You know, how did this come about? You know, that's funny. Um, you know, I started working on this a, a few years back. And, you know, the films that, that really drew from, for me, were, you know, films of my youth, like, you know, Alien, um, where you just have a, a small group of people trapped. Um, in a single environment with something, you know, nefarious after them. Uh, that that kind of stuff inspired me. And, you know, other subsequent films down the line, such as, you know, like Cube is a good reference, another Lionsgate film, um, where you have, you know, people trying to get through these puzzles or, 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 or follow a puzzle to, to, to get to a... Uh, uh, a result that, you know, the whole group needs to get through. You know, Saw is another, and, you know, these type of films. So I think that was, when you drew on that, I think that was the initial, the initial jump-off point for what we wanted to do with the film, um, and, and, you know, what I was trying to achieve through it. But I think the end result might be a little bit more than that, in that, you know, what, some of them while you're watching the film is maybe figure out why. That's the big, the big clue, or the big, the big question is why we're, why we're here, and why we're doing this, um, yeah. and what the purpose of this puzzle even is. 
Well, and the thing is, your puzzle is actually, it's a very analog concept. Good. I'm glad you got that, yeah. I love the analog nature of this. There are no cell phones, no smartphones. You can't Google anything. Um, yeah. You've got to figure out how to use a compass. You know, you've got one bullet and a gun. Do you use it right away and shoot the first thing that you see that moves? Or do you stop and wait and think and calculate? Yeah. You've got yeah. lanterns. People have to figure out how to use stick matches. That was a very nice touch, yeah. having stick matches. I like that, Emerson. Thank you. Yeah, the, the, a big clue is to maybe pay attention to what era the items are from. Mm-hmm. And as we go through the film, that really becomes more and more evident, especially, and no spoilers here, but when we get into the third act, the real eral aspect of this comes to fruition. And, I mean, I saw what you did what you had set up in the in a storage container and all I thought of was oh my god it looks like my dad's basement <laughs> I mean he was yeah. six, 60 years of television engineer so you can imagine the kind of analog stuff I, I grew up yeah, with yeah. but you really hone into this and because you have all of these 21st century you have these six individuals born and bred in the 20s in the 21st century they're not really going to have that much of a clue as to each one of these elements and what's happening from an analog standpoint and they essentially become fish out of water so you you bring all this in but not only do you bring this in with the script you carry this through with your visual grammar your visual design when you guys were writing this were you knowing you're going to direct this were you plotting out your visuals already because this is very very visual and visceral which is where your work with your dp with stephen whitehead comes into play because this is so this in and of itself your construct is a puzzle much like the puzzle in the maze that our six subjects are trying to go through. Right. Mm-hmm. Talk, talk well, to me know, about that. Yeah, it's interesting you touch on the visual aspect of the film. It's definitely something that's at the forefront of my mind. Um, I storyboarded the whole film prior to shooting, so I knew where we were going um, before we ever got started. Um, you know, the trick for me with that is that you know i don't want to leave anything to chance and um telling a visual story is a very important part of it mm-hmm. um for me as a filmmaker i think it's you know at the front of how an audience member or a viewer you know responds to a film there's a lot of things that happen um when you're telling the visual story that that you need you need to work um, and that needs to be in concert with what you're doing with the score and sound design. So yeah, it was definitely something that was planned out uh, well in advance. I I started storyboarding the movie, um, you know, during so that going into prep, it was already ready. Well, something that you and Stephen actually work out with the camera work and the lighting. I'll start with the camera work is you give us quite a number of overhead shots so that we really it's not just that we're immersed in the cornfield with our subjects we get to see just like you know sam can look at a a a maze on a on a piece of cardboard we're seeing the maze from the from the overhead from the bird's eye view perspective uh in living color and that is so key here and really keeps us not only in the moment with them but really showing us the grand scope of what's going on here which just fuels more questions as to who the heck designed this thing and you've got booby traps along the way and this is where your production design comes into play talk to me about that and coming up with the actual physical design michael mcshane is your production designer but this physical design is very deliberate 
and these traps that are set along the way because hey when you're in a cornfield anything can happen true yeah so i'm curious about designing that because all of that is so integral into your story progression mm-hmm. yeah um I'm, I'm happy to touch on that so um you know we, we shot this right in the heart of the pandemic so there were a lot of challenges that we faced while, you know, creating the world that, that became Escape the Field. So uh, everything was very deliberate in that sense, but again, it needed to feel analog, if you will. So, you know, it, I needed it to feel a certain way and um, I needed things to be designed a certain way and Michael really did a great job. He was able to uh, source what we could during the pandemic to create the feeling of what I was going for. And I feel like we got there. We got where we needed to be. So um, that was just all in the press the time that we had. So how big of a cornfield did you have to work with? I think we had like three or four kilometers, square kilometers. So we have a lot of corn. So I put everything primarily into one area. And obviously, corn, it's fully grown, it's green, um, the leaves, yeah. and the leaves work really well. Here again with Stephen's camera work, and you're, you're blocking, because we also get a voyeuristic viewpoint, so that we are, we are in, have the eye, the eye line of whatever, I call it the corn monster, that is, you know, lurking. So you give us all these different POVs, each one of our our six individuals who suddenly wake up, one in their nightgown. Yeah, it's... <laughs> so, you know, people are just taken in the middle of the night. They all must be really light sleepers. Yeah, right. But, so you plot all this out, then you layer on top of this, Emerson, and a wonderful, wonderful soundscape and a great score by Will Musser. Your soundscape, we noticed right at the very beginning when we ha- when they're in the cornfield and the wind is going through. Because having been in a cornfield before, that is how the wind sounds with the, with the leaves. It's not like trees. It's something totally different because of the weight and length of the husks on and the leaves on the stalks uh-huh. it's beautiful and then you bring in will's score and it's not just a score but it's an integral part of the soundscape and then you play with silence this is just yeah. i love i am in love with this soundscape emerson in love with it oh, thank you yeah will did a fantastic job and you know, you'll find, if you pay attention to the sounds that you are hearing, the silence and whatnot, they all relate to the items as well. Mm-hmm. They're all from the, they're all from the same era. Um, that, that, uh, you know, lends towards that analog feel from the, you know, post-World War II into the 50s. So, you know, back to Clue. <laughs> 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 what's happening. You know, yeah, Will, Will did a fantastic job. What were you looking for sound design and particularly for Will with the score because he uses a lot of sound as opposed to musicality there's some very distinct sound that gets integrated yeah I started working with um, Will even before we started shooting so I had a lot of what you hear like the opening cue um, was already finished, and I would play it on set um, as we were heading into scenes or at different moments that felt opportune. Um, I would play it for the actors, and, and we would draw from that. So that kind of tonality that exists within the score was present prior to shooting. So um, it was fun to have that available and spend time with it. Mm-hmm. But I think it meshed well with the, you know, the sound that you actually hear in a cornfield. So, mm-hmm. 
I love the blend of because it, it almost becomes a cacophony at points, but not a bombastic John Philip Sousa kind of cacophony of sound. It's it's very it's wind it's wind driven, very ambiently driven with the sound. And at night things get much quieter to the point that you can even hear the crackle of the small fire when they're trying to keep warm or the sounds of bigger fires as they pop up. But you know, always in very safe places so they don't set the whole cornfield and themselves on fire. I, I love that nice touch that you threw in there. But as this story unfolds, we have these six characters. We have Brian, Sam, Ethan, Denise, Cameron, Tyler. We and with each step we're learning something about each of them. And that's also very interesting is the the skill set that each has and the knowledge that each has that gets brought to the table. So you start thinking they were all picked purposefully. How did you come up with your designing your six characters? You know, that's interesting. I, I, the, the main thing there was that, you know, each of them should bring something to the table in the sense, or some may have particular skill sets that lend themselves better to a situation, but in the end, might not necessarily be what's needed at that particular time. But there's, you'll find the purpose as to why they're there revealed within each character's dialogue. Mm-hmm. So if you pay attention to what they're saying, you'll you'll figure out you know why why Ethan's there, why Julian's there, why he's in the why Ethan's in the court game to begin with, um, uh, as as well as the same with Denise. Um, there's a definite reason for her to be there as mm-hmm. well. Um, so I think that's the real trick was just. They all tie together. There is a, there is a common thread, mm-hmm. believe it or not. Yeah, it's just tough to find. It's not right, it's not right up front and obvious. Well, because they're, again, their personalities and their connective tissue are also a maze and a puzzle. You've got puzzle upon puzzle upon puzzle here, Emerson. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah. this is a fun kind of movie because of that very structure. I have to watch it again. Because there's so much, and I was so intrigued that I really want to go back and watch it again just for more clues. Oh yeah. Within the dialogue, I've got I've got over two pages of notes already that I made while I was watch, watching the film, with a lot of the stuff that's happening in here. We've got people tripping and falling and losing their glasses, and they're blind as a bat and they can't see. And what does that what entails from that? You know, it's just one thing after another. But what really hammers this home and was is so key is your casting for each of these roles. And I think you did a wonderful job with casting. Shane West is always amazing. I have I have adored Shane's performances for years. Julian Fetter, this is such a great step up for him. After his, after playing against Jeffrey Dean Morgan in Walkaway Joe, I mean Julian is fabulous as Ethan. Jordan Claire Robbins as Sam is superb, and then of course Theo Rossi as Tyler. I think we see more of Tyler and Sam than we do. Not only because they're the first two people to wake up in the cornfield that we meet, but I think they're really a driving force here. But, you know, yeah. how challenging was casting this? Because you really needed the right persona that an actor could bring to each of these characters. You know, I was, I got really lucky with, in, as far as casting goes. It was, uh, it was uh, everything came together um, at the right time and, and fit really well with what was happening. Um, it was tough because we were shooting during a pandemic and basically in the heart of it in September of 2020 and we just had this window up there in, in Toronto to shoot and um, Theo and I had worked together on 
uh, a film previously, so we had a connection, and, and he had read the script early on and had been super busy, and somehow or another, this, this just happened to work during this time for all of us even to get to work at that moment. So um, when Shane and I connected uh, via a FaceTime call after he had read the script, um, it, it, there was just an immediate click and we knew that we wanted to do this film together and then with Jordan coming to the table as well um, that was another you know FaceTime call and I knew within just a few moments of speaking of her that she was Sam and then everything fell into place the same exact way with Tahira, Elena and Julian as well so I just got really lucky in that sense that everyone was available and everyone was willing to get on a plane during that time um, that was a big deal, um, and you know, it was such a special experience in such a trying time uh, that we all spent so much time together. Um, you know, we had a couple weeks together before we could start filming, um, so we had a good chunk of rehearsal time, and you know, we were in a bubble the whole the whole couple months. You know the whole months that we were together, you know, we spent all of our time with one another. So we all became very close as well. And it was great to see the cast and everyone become such close friends. Well, we all still talk to one another to this day. So it was a very special in that regard. I was really lucky with the cast. Such a talented group of folks. So being in a bubble, uh, a COVID bubble during this shooting, you're working in a cornfield, how often was corn yeah. on your on your menu? You know, it really wasn't at all. <laughs> um, we shot at a farm called Downey's Farm out in Caledon. Uh, I hope I'm saying that right. Outside Toronto, and they have a wonderful kitchen and make the best food ever. So they would drive all of our food was fresh right out of the kitchen. So it's literally the best I've ever ate on a film. Oh. We, would, we would be in the middle of shooting at three in the morning and hot croissants would show up. <laughs> we were pretty spoiled. Wow. You know, see, now yeah. the problem is everybody is going to, the word's going to get around. They're going to expect this, that you're going to have great craft service on every film you direct, Emerson. Yeah, well, yeah, let's do it. I think that's, it's, it should be a, a writer for sure. Well, <laughs> you know, the way to get yeah. people to work is give them food. You know that. Yep. So, including myself. So, <laughs> including your, including. I did, I did have good food. I had, we had all kinds of great, some great food on set. So, like, I've got to ask you, with the way you constructed this story, building the tension here, because it's real. It's a cat and mouse tension builder. It's not like a single pop boiler that keeps building, 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 building to the final moments in your third act, as a lot of films do. You've got an ebb and flow, highs and lows with your tension. So I'm curious, working with your editor, Mitchell Martin, how challenging was the editing process to number one showcase just but now I'm not calling it right. of each so of our six principles and build that yeah. tension? Yeah. Have something happen. Build it again. It's a very interesting construct from an editing standpoint.
you know, I had to wait for a window to fly over to Europe and uh, do my mix and color um, in London, uh, which is where we finished the film, uh, at Lip Sync over there. So uh, I had to wait for that window and when was a good time to fly and, um, so, you know, other various aspects to finish the film. Well, and mentioning the color, um, let me just piggyback a little on that with, you're, you were doing night for night with a lot of this, were you not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We shot everything practical. Okay. And, you know, we switched over to night and ran around out there in the freezing cold. Yeah. Because it, it just looks so gorgeous. And the way Stephen has has brought in lighting to also light especially in, in some of those deepest darkest night scenes like with the moon shining possibly shining down and then fire in the distance really beautiful and your color correction your color really feeds into that so we get that inkiness of night but not the dark blue black inkiness this actually does have more of a teal to it because of the green from the corn stalks really beautiful yeah, yeah, I was really happy with the way that came out. Came out. We shot on some Coke anamorphic, which I really love. Um, <laughs> my, my favorite lens, for sure. So, you know, that coupled with the storyboarding, I know exactly what I wanted. Yeah, so, I... It was just a matter of getting the camera in the right spot and doing it. I, I, um, I love that you're a cook, Dave O.T. I love cooks and anamorphs. Yeah, me too. Anamorphics are yeah. perfect for this film. Yeah, it's the only way to shoot it. Yeah. So, yeah. It was a lot of fun. So I utilized that and I had um Greg, uh my my uh city cam operator is just phenomenal. Um so that gave me a lot of freedom to move uh while I was shooting. So um you'll see that a lot throughout the film. Mm -hmm. It was um designed into it um, while I was boarding as well. So yeah, I got really lucky. Everything came together and worked out perfect. Now, this is your first feature, is it not? Yeah, my first film directing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now what was, I've got to ask you then, especially shooting during COVID, you know, what was the learning curve like for you jumping into a feature and a feature of this nature? Yeah, I mean, this one had its own interesting challenges, right? So. You know, you're shooting in a cornfield with six people. <laughs> how do you keep that interesting? How do you how, 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 do, how do you keep the audience's attention? You know, so for me, you know, I think I touched on the visual story is a huge part of everything for me. So um, storyboarding was everything, and understanding how to do that, and and using different um, using different methods to keep the audience engaged visually, I think was the, the real trick. Um, and then that coupled with the performances of standing actors, it made my job really easy. You know, I just had to show up and make sure we were putting things together in the right manner at that point. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's the way I like to, to work. Um, on set regardless. I like all that work to be done so that, you know, by the time I'm on set, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a guy that hangs out in Video Village. Um, by the time I'm on set, all that work's done. So I can be there with my actors and present. Mm -hmm. um, so I spend my time next to the lens. Emerson, it shows. It definitely shows. Now the film is coming out you got in theaters on digital on demand on may 6th what's next for you because people are going to love this yeah. film they're going to love this film but what's now next for you are you moving on to another project or are you going to bask in the glow of completing your first feature oh no i'm already in prep on the next one i'm i leave in a couple weeks for um go back um, we're, we're heading directly into prep on my next film and I'll start shooting in mid to late June. Uh, Emerson, this has been so great to get to talk to you about Escape the Field. I hope we can do it again in the future. Oh, 
Oh, thank you. And hopefully we'll chat sooner rather than later. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye now. And that was Emerson Moore talking about his feature directorial debut, co-writer as well, Escape the Field, a thriller. Uh, I think you're really going to like it. It is out on all platforms May 6th, Select Theaters, Digital, VOD. And also on May 6th, we've got Doctor Strange and the Multiverse coming out. Uh, which I'm going to race off to and screen today. Uh, but you're going to have to wait until next week for me to talk about that. And also, next week, we're going to have the filmmakers of Peace by Chocolate. Peace, P-E-A-C-E, and Chocolate, perfect combination. So, join, and our filmmakers will be live next week. Uh, talking about Peace by Chocolate. So that is all the time we have today. Until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. <laughs>